Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started in today's uh, talk, I wanted to tell you about today's culinary medicine theme. And uh, again, thank all the folks who dedicate their time to helping us learn about nutrition and what we can teach ourselves and our patients. So last week's topic was Healthy Plate Revisited. This week's topic was Boosting Nutrition. So out there this week you saw information about how to boost nutrition and the nutritional value of food. Last week was Healthy Plate Revisited. And as you know, the trivia contest is about last week's topic. And the trivia question this week was, name two ways to boost nutrition in your favorite recipes. And so the answer that was chosen at random, uh, the, this person said, water, use water and drink water instead of juice, soda, and sweetened drinks, and eat a rainbow. Eat a rainbow is very good. Eat a rainbow of fruits and vegetables of all the colors. So that was Peter Nelson. Peter, come up and get your prize. Very good. And Peter, this uh, is a very interesting gift today. It is a package of black beans and a recipe for making, in keeping with today's theme perhaps, black bean brownies. So, uh, there you go. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so, Jean-Fred, we do this every week before Medical Grand Rounds. We have a culinary medicine program where uh, dietitians and uh, there's a pediatrician chef and a variety of other internists and other people who are interested in nutrition prepare breakfast every Friday before. Yeah, we need a French cook, yes. May we? <laughs> well, to introduce you today to uh, our dear guest, Professor Colombel, uh, I'm going to introduce Corey Siegel, who is an associate professor of medicine in the section of gastroenterology and hepatology and the director of our Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center. And Corey will tell us about Jean-Fred. Thanks, Rich. Good morning, and uh, thanks for being here. It's my honor to introduce Dr. Jean-Fred Colombel, who uh, spent most of his career in Lille, France, until he came to Mount Sinai in New York City in 2013, where he's a professor of medicine, director of the IBD Center of the Icon School of Medicine. He's done a lot of things in his career. He has been the president of ECHO, the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization. He was the chair of the International Organization of IBD, or IOIBD. And he's had amazingly well over 600 publications in this field and has really been a, a leader in our field. If you uh, think about the diffusion of innovation curve, and if you think of the very end of it, of the innovators, he's at the very, very leading edge of those innovators in our field, and I think there's not a single thing that we do in IBD, whether it's a new medication or more importantly, what you'll hear about today, new strategies in using our medications that in some way don't come back to Jean Fred's either idea initially or his New England Journal of Medicine publication or something that has really changed the world in the way that we think about inflammatory bowel disease. It's, uh, it's rare that we have a, a true global leader in a field that's so collaborative, so mentoring, and uh, most importantly, a real gentleman. So Jean-Fred, it's an honor for you to be here and uh, know you, and thanks for coming up. Thank you, Corey. This is a very, very nice word. Um, thank you for the welcome. First, you will notice that I'm a strange New Yorker with a strong French accent. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm not able to lose this French accent. <laughs> and I think I will never. Anyway. 
Um, so I will talk today about uh, new therapeutic uh, strategies in IBD. So it's a very exciting time for us in IBD. Um, this is my conflict of interest list. Uh, IBD is really becoming a worldwide disease. When I started, uh, like in the 70s, uh, IBD was restricted to Northern Europe and uh, Northern America. And the most recent data uh, are showing that IBD is spreading all over the world. I was in China one month ago. I mean, it's amazing. They are uh, seeing more and more cases of ulcerative colitis first. And then after five to 10 years, this uh, increasing incidence of, of Crohn's disease. Same for uh, Northern Africa, Eastern Europe, India. And for instance, at the last ECHO meeting uh, this year, we had like 6,000 participants and we had 1,000 participants coming from those countries. So it's a, it's a worldwide disease. Still, um, a question which is frequently asked, okay, the incidence of Crohn's disease is increasing in those countries, in these emerging countries, but what about our own countries? Globally speaking, the incidence number of new cases is quite stable. But there is something which is worrying that the incidence of Crohn's disease is still increasing in the adolescents. This is a recent data from a population-based registry that I was running in northern France. I think it's the biggest in the world. We have now almost 30,000 incident cases of uh, IBD. And when you look at the incidence of Crohn's disease, this is in a, a youngster from uh, 10 to 19, look, the incidence has almost doubled from uh, 1988 to, to, to 2008. The increase was less uh, from uh, zero to 19. And of course, it is still increasing, but this is a small increase in the very young. So there is still something happening to our adolescents in uh, our developed countries. And similar data has, have been reported in UK, in Sweden, in Canada. So uh, of course, this is a strong argument for environmental factors, but unfortunately, we don't have made, uh, we, so many progress as far as finding new, new clues as far as uh, environment. So the good news as well, and this is just to give you a, a global view of uh, IBD, is that we have more and more drugs. This is a kind of cartoon, uh, which I call the Crohn's disease pipeline. It's not perfectly up to date, but just to make the point that if you go from phase one to phase three and uh, registration and launch, we have a lot of drugs coming. Of course, many of those drugs will die on their way, but still, we believe that within the two, three years, we'll have uh, at least three or four agents that will be available in clinical practice. Not yet like the rheumatologist, and we are very envious uh, of them, but it's, uh, it's coming. So um, because of this uh, moving, moving field, uh, we have now completely changed our mind about the, uh, the management and the view we are uh, thinking about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The change is, has been amazing in the last five years. So I will just describe very briefly some of new concepts, some uh, new goals. What are the new goals of our treatment leading to new therapeutic strategies? And I will end by uh, stressing some unmet needs. 
What about the new concept? I'm starting with this very single, very simple slide, which basically is an illustration of a patient with Crohn's disease, like we were um, thinking about even five or 10 years ago. An intermittent disease with flares, remission, flare, and so on and so forth. And we were uh, measuring the inflammatory activity based on CDAI, the clinical index, endoscopic index, and CRP. And we were very happy when we were able to control the symptoms, and our goal was to improve the quality of life. But times have changed. Now we recognize that Crohn's disease, as, rheum as rheumatoid arthritis, as basically all chronic inflammatory disorders, should be considered as a progressive disease. And when you have all these different flares, flares are intermittent, but the damage caused to the gut is progressive. Very simple slide that was drawn by my late friend Mark Neman, which I think perfectly illustrates this. During the course of these patients, you will have many flares, and as a consequence of uncontrolled flares and uncontrolled inflammatory activity, damage will occur. Damage, like strictures, fistula, and abscesses, leading to surgery, which basically is the ultimate damage because you resect the segment which is sick, then uh, recurrence, and so on and so forth. And uh, in the recent years, we were not able to really assess the damage. We didn't have a tool to measure the cumulative damage. And as we often do, we looked at uh, what the rheumatologists were doing to create an index of bowel damage. As you know, the rheumatologists, and maybe there are uh, rheumatologists in this audience, they are well uh, ahead of us, uh, they have uh, invented this uh, scoring system, which is called the Sharp van der Heide score, which is basically a score of bone damage. And many, uh, almost all, clini for all clinical trials, their primary endpoint is not so more symptoms and so on, is the score of bone damage. And on the right hand side, you have a, a recent paper, uh, not recent actually, uh, even 10 years ago, showing that when you introduce uh, DMARD, so disease modifier in rheumatoid arthritis early as compared to late, you are able to prevent bowel damage. And this is what we have basically taken as a model. And recently, look, basically 15 years after the rheumatologist, we have just uh, published, this was, I think, in the last issue of uh, gastro, the first uh, index to measure uh, bowel damage in Crohn's disease. This, is, this index is called the Lehman Index, because once again, it was the ID came from Mark, uh, and uh, so this was a kind of uh, tribute. This index is based on measurements of disease damage in the different segments of the gut, assessed by, of course, surgery, but also assessed mainly by MRI and endoscopy. I don't have time to describe how you can measure the uh, damage, but I believe you, should, you, you will and you should start soon to measure this Lehman index in all your patients. And this is a very recent paper, which is in press in CGH by Jacques Cohn from Saint Louis in Paris, showing in his cohort a nice progression of damage with time. So uh, this is a kind of validation of the index because it, uh, this study shows nicely that when 
you have, uh, when time is accumulating, the damage is accumulating as well. So this index, I believe, will be used soon in further clinical trials. So because we have this new concept, of course, we have now a new goal. In the past, the, the goal was to treat symptoms and to improve quality of life. But it's not enough. What we want to do is to block this disease progression and prevent damage and disability. Basically, we want to flatten this curve. <coughs> so another question which is frequently asked, okay, this is a nice concept for Crohn's disease. Is it the same for ulcerative colitis? There is still an question mark. I believe that ulcerative colitis may be considered as well as a progressive disease and that the same concept may apply, even though this is more disputed. As you know, uh, as a marker of disease progression, there is extension. When you start your disease with E1 or E2, which is a proctosigmoiditis, you have, after 10 years, 50% chance of progression of extension. Interestingly enough, those who start with a pancolitis may also regress. So disease location may progress in patients with UC. Something which has been completely lost in translation because I believe we don't do any more barium enema, and I love barium enema, <laughs> is this concept that in ulcerative colitis is not only the mucosa. And now we are only relying on endoscopy or histology to assess activity and healing in ulcerative colitis. I think this is a mistake. There are a lot of data which have been completely forgotten, showing that, for instance, there is a relationship be between this, <coughs> this space and the duration of disease. There is increased fat deposition, luminal narrowing of the rectum, rectal wall thickening, and stronging of the perirectal fat. If you want to do something more sophisticated, you can do MRI, and you will fix exactly the same finding, much more expensive. <laughs> and look at this colon. This colon is a kind of end stage you see. This is a microcolon and loss of ostration, showing that in some cases, ulcerative colitis may be progressive as well. And I'm showing this picture because I am seeing patients with UC receiving up to 20 milligrams per kick of infliximab every four weeks because the disease was considered refractory, even though it's just a, a simple enema or even just by putting your finger, you, you know that it's gone. There is no way you will be able to treat these patients. These patients need to go to the surgeon. Other example of uh, what I'm calling structural damage and loss of, of function. This is an end stage uh, colon of patients with UC. So yes, I believe also that UC is a progressive disease. And Corre, I think it's a good time for you to develop a new index of bowel damage in ulcerative colitis. <laughs> so new concept, new goal, let's talk about new strategies. And for us, it's a completely new vocabulary. Once again, if there are rheumatologists in the audience, they will laugh uh, at me because they know all this concept by, by heart. Treat to targets, the concept of tie controls through monitoring, the concept of importance of early intervention, and this is very precious to me, 
And also something which is more um, European, but we are working on that with Corea as well, which is this concept of de-escalation and cycles of treatment. Treat to target is an old concept which has been applied at, to many chronic diseases, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, hypertension. If you visit your cardiologist tomorrow, he will not care so much about your <laughs> symptoms. He will tell you, this is what I want. This is my target. And why is that? Because in all these diseases, for instance, this is diabetes type 1, it has been shown that when you are able to reach these targets, this is associated with increased survival. So what's the target in IBD? It's tough. And this is still evolving uh, thought. You have the clinical activity, which I represent as the tip of the iceberg, but below, you have a lot of different targets. Biochemical activity, for instance, targeting biomarkers, CRP, calprotectin in stools, endoscopic activity, and even deeper, histological activity. You can even imagine molecular activity. So what's a good target and what is relevant in clinical practice? We don't know yet. But it's true that there is a, a huge move towards changing our targets already, and this is what we are already doing in clinical practice, from clinical activity to endoscopic activity. What are the data? First, we, we, we think we should do that because it's feasible. Few years ago, it was not feasible to get these very nice pictures of endoscopic healing because steroids, five-azar, and so on were not able to get this job. But now we have the tools with anti-TNF, with vedolizumab, with all these biologics, the tools are there who enable us to heal the mucosa in Crohn's and in UC. Second, we have some postdoc analysis of big clinical trials that suggest that if you are able to bring a patient in a state of endoscopic healing beyond clinical remission, this will be associated with better long-term outcomes. This is a postdoc sub-analysis of the step-up top-down trial, where they compare uh, intensive uh, treatment with infliximab upfront to classical step-up, but this is not the purpose of this slide. <laughs> at the end of this trial, they had 80 patients who had a colonoscopy at year two. And then those patients were followed up to year three and four. And some of them were in full endoscopic remission, or endoscopic index SCSCD was zero in purple, and some of them had still endoscopic activity. And when looking at different endpoints at, at your three and four, such as no steroids and in remission, no steroids or infliximab and in remission, or uh, presence occurrence of new or active draining fistula, those patients who were in endoscopic killing at your two did <coughs> much better during your three and four. So it's an indirect argument, but which had a, a, which had a very strong impact. I did basically the same, and once again, I want to be very cautious. This is postdoc data from the um, uh, big trial, the ACT trial, which is a trial showing the efficacy of infliximab in uh, ulcerative colitis. When I looked at endoscopy at eight weeks in these patients, some patients were in endoscopic killing, endoscopic score zero or one, blue or orange. Some patients at week eight had still endoscopic activity, either two or three. And when I look at the long term, 
those who were able to achieve very early at week eight endoscopic healing had much less surgery than those patients who didn't get endoscopic healing. But this is post-hoc data, and the number of colectomy was small. So we have to take, once again, we have to be cautious and to interpret the data in their context. Even, uh, even though this is the only data that we have, at the international level, we were thinking that it's time, like rheumatologists have done, to define for the clinicians our targets. And this was the goal of STRIDE, which was a multicentric international effort organized by IYBD, and Corey was part of that, trying to define what should be the target. And I will not go in detail, but for instance, for ulcerative colitis, the consensus target now, and this should be applied in clinical practice, your target when treating ulcerative colitis should be a combination on clinical remission defined as uh, no rectal bleeding and normal uh, bowel uh, uh, movements and endoscopic remission, which is, which is very new. I mean, this kind of consensus, I mean, could really change the practice. And even though, once again, the data supporting this treat-to-target approach are not so strong, this has already been implemented in clinical practice. This is a study um, that was done by Bill Sandborn. It's not a study, it's an algorithm that he proposed. When you are treating a patient with active IBD, you treat during 12 weeks, and then at six months, you evaluate your targets. And your target should be no symptoms, no surrogate markers of inflammation such as CRP or fecal calpro, and endoscopic healing. And if your target is not reached, you need to optimize or to switch. So this is a very strong statement, very strong statement, even though it's not based on strong evidence-based. Because the real question, actually, is this one. Okay, this is nice, but this is all post-hoc. But should we treat to mucosalilin versus treat to symptoms? When you have a patient coming to your clinical practice, he's doing very well clinically, you scope, and you see there are still ulcers, should you step up? It's a big therapeutic decision. And evidence should come from prospective clinical trials. So there is this clinical trial, which is called REACT-2, which is now running in the United States. It's a very interesting trial because it's a cluster randomization trial, meaning that practices and not patients are randomized to treat their patients either according to the classical step care treatment algorithm, mainly based on symptoms, or to an enhanced care treatment algorithm. This algorithm is quite complex, but just concentrates on the red part. Actually, the point is that the patients will be step up if at different points in time, different milestones, they are not in endoscopic remission. While in the classic step up, they, they will be only step up uh, based on clinical data. So we are waiting for the results of this uh, trial, who basically will confirm or not that we should treat through endoscopic healing. Second concept is the concept of tie controls through monitoring. And this is illustrated here. If we want to keep these patients in remission, avoiding progression and damage, we need to control the patient, not daily, but uh, for instance, every three months, every six months. 
And of course, it's difficult to follow this patient using endoscopy or cross-sectional imaging. This is why you are seeing in the literature this huge interest for biomarkers. And so far, we have two main biomarkers in IBD, CRP and fecal calprotectin. And we have also some postdoc data showing that they could, they could play a very nice role. This is a story trial. It's a study where we stopped infliximab in patients who are in remission. And when we followed patients, some patients relapsed in orange, and some patients did well, even though the infliximab was stopped. But what was fascinating is that in relapser, there was a higher median CRP and CalPro during follow-up, but much more importantly, there was a sudden and pronounced increase in CRP and CalPro during the four months prior to relapse, meaning that we could predict the clinical relapse in these patients. If this holds true, that means that instead of waiting to see the clinical relapse, we should monitor these patients on their biomarkers and treat very early in order to prevent any kind of clinical symptoms. So here is a question. Should we treat to biomarkers or treat to symptoms? We need a prospective clinical study. And this is a study that I'm running in, uh, in Canada and uh, Europe. It's called the CALM study. And the CALM study, uh, the principle <laughs> is that the, the titration of treatment based on objective parameters, CRP and CALPRO, in addition to symptoms, will lead to better control of the disease. So it's a difficult study to recruit because we need patients naive to immunomodulators and biologics, flaring Crohn disease, they are all on prednisone, and then in this arm, they are step up to adalimumab, and then to adalimumab every other week, and then to combo, only based on clinical data. Why in the tight control arm, they are step up based on CDI, clinical data, but also CRP and CalPro, meaning that if a patient at different points in time is doing well clinically, but his CalPro is still more than 150, he will be stepped up. And this uh, protocol will tell us in a prospective way if we should treat to targets, treat to biomarkers instead of treating to symptoms. The recruitment is completed almost after five years. Something else which is part of the tie control, and I'm sure you are doing that in your clinical practice, is drug monitoring. In clinical practice, this is what I'm doing. I am monitoring the biomarkers, but I'm monitoring the levels. I'm monitoring the metabolites of azathioprine, and I'm monitoring the levels and antibodies uh, for the biologics. And this has been shown to be uh, useful for optimizing response, optimizing loss of response, optimizing maintenance, optimizing de-escalation, and uh, before retreatment after a long drug holiday. Question, okay, this is all postdoc data as well. Should we treat to trough versus treat to symptoms? We need evidence from prospective clinical trials. One of the studies was recently performed by the group from Leuven and published in the last issue of Gastro. It's called TAXIT, it's a TAXI trial, very nice study where they took almost 300 patients in remission. They measured their baseline levels and they were randomized. The first group, the optimization of infliximab was based on infliximab trough level. And the second group, 
dosing and optimization was, was based on clinical symptoms. Primary endpoint was clinical and biological emission at one year. And the primary endpoint was negative, actually, showing that we have always be careful when looking at postdoc and waiting for results of prospective data. Still, there was some several secondary endpoints positive, and notably this one, the need for intervention or flare was lower in the patients who were uh, basically monitored as, co as compared in orange as compared to the patients who were just followed clinically. And the cost per uh, patient was basically the same. There is another prospective ongoing study done by the JETED and my, my friends in French, in France, sorry, which is called the um, Telorix study. This is a study where we treat patients with induction infliximab combo, and at week 14, we randomize patients. Some patients will be optimized only based on their elevated CDI. If CDI is too high, they will be step up to 10. But those two groups will be step up, even though they are doing clinically well, but their trough level is too low. And in this group, they will be step up first to 7.5 and then to 10, and this group immediately to 10. So this is a kind of prospective data which are really needed to answer this question. The concept of early intervention is, is very keen to me. Why is that? Because this is the same slide that I showed at the beginning, and I strongly believe in this window of opportunity. Generally speaking, I believe that if we would be able to see in our centers where you have uh, people who are knowledgeable in IBD, all patients with Crohn's disease and UC who will change their life. There is a window of opportunity, and you shouldn't miss this window of opportunity. Look at these data that I have already shown yesterday. When you treat early patients with Crohn's disease with a combination of infliximab and azathioprine, the results are just amazing. 65% at 26 weeks are in deep remission. It's, it's very, it's huge. We have never observed such data. No ulcerations, no CRP, no symptom whatsoever. But they have been treated early. So the question is coming, do we need accelerated step care? Evidence needed from prospective clinical trials. And this is a REACT trial that was uh, performed by Brian Figan and Justin Press in The Lancet, where uh, quite complex algorithm one uh, cluster randomization study uh, again. Some practices were treated their patients with a classical progressive step up, and some practices were using this intensive uh, approach. And I will not uh, detail, but just note this, this red spot, meaning that the patients were, was, were really followed every four weeks, and if it was not doing well, it was, it was step up. So it's a kind of intensive step care approach. And Guess what? The study was negative. No difference for the primary endpoint. So big disappointment. The primary endpoint, which was clinical, the Harvey Bradshaw index, and no steroids, was negative. But Brian, we very often will say that you should never look at the secondary endpoint if the primary endpoint is negative, still, is making a big case of the secondary endpoint, <laughs> which is a time to first hospitalization, surgery, or complication, and of course, there is some evidence that when you do early combined immunosuppression as compared to conventional step-up, 
you are doing better. But little bit disappointing study. Finally, a new concept as well in strategy, de-escalation, and I, I talked about that yesterday. So the point that uh, we have very few data uh, regarding how we should stop, when, when we should stop all these drugs. And many patients are asking for that, and there are many reasons that we discussed yesterday why stopping should be considered. But when you look at the data, this is data in patients who are on combo therapy, infliximab and azathioprine for more than one year, clinical remission doing perfectly well. You stop the infliximab and you maintain azathioprine. After two years, 50% of patients relapse. So, not so good. But we were able to come with some predictors of non-relapse and to build this kind of multivariate model. And to make a long story short, we were able to identify a group of patients who uh, didn't uh, relapse or only relapse, 20% only relapse after two years or three years. And those patients had predictors of non-relapse. And the most important predictors of non-relapse was the fact that when they stopped the drug, they were not only in clinical remission, but only in biological and endoscopic remission. So we believe that this uh, could be the kind of trigger when you want to stop drug. But this has to be confirmed because this uh, study was not controlled. This is why, and, uh, and Corey and uh, myself are part of this very nice uh, European uh, project. Actually, it's not only European. It's the first time that we have, able, we have been able to join ECHO and CCFA and JETEL, which is a French group, in a project which will uh, globally looking at de-escalation strategies. And as part of this project, there will be a clinical trial, which is called the SPARE trial. Same concept that story, patients on combo doing well, but this study will be randomized. Continuing, stopping the infliximab and recycling in case of failure, stopping the metabolites and recycling in case of, of failure. So we are eagerly waiting the result of this trial. So just to conclude, uh, if we want to adopt all these new goals, strategies, and concepts, uh, there are still a lot of unmet needs. And the most important in my practice is this one. When you see patients in your clinic, this is what you will be seeing. You will, you will see these patients, very mild case of Crohn's disease, sometimes even will have one surgery, and these patients will do very well for 15 years, 20 years. Very, very mild case. And you have this one, which I used to call kind of malignant Crohn's disease. You will see this patient in your clinic almost every week, refractory to everything. So when you are seeing this patient for the first time, I would be very keen to treat this patient with the most aggressive treatment, maybe with a combination of biologics, and this is a project that we have with Corey as well, while this patient certainly not, because I will over-treat this patient. So it's all about prediction. How can we predict a diagnosis what would be the course of our patients, uh, knowing that they are so heterogeneous? We can use clinical data, endoscopic data, imaging, genetics, serological markers, uh, fecal markers, maybe microbiome markers. For instance, in the clinic, these are the criteria we are using to define this is a bad patient, but this is mainly clinical sense, huh? clinical nose, and much more than uh, strongly evidence-based, age, stricture, perianal disease, weight loss, need for steroids, smoking. 
We are also using some endoscopic criteria. Actually, it's just the point that when you, when you scope and when you arrive at the colon, you say, wow, I mean, this, this is bad. This is a presence of deep ulcers. And because there are data showing that when you have deep ulcer in the colon, here in orange, it is associated with a high risk of colectomy at one, two, and three years. We are using serological markers. This is a nice study by uh, Marla Dubinsky, showing uh, that when you accumulate antibodies in your blood and when you accumulate high level of antibodies in your blood, this is associated to a prediction of complication and need for surgery. But uh, I think the, the most, uh, so far, the most uh, achieved tool is a tool by uh, Corey which is very nice. This is a system uh, dynamic model. He, he will talk about that much better than me, but this was his first study in pediatric cases. He has now same data in adults. Uh, and he, he was able to get all demographic, clinical, <laughs> genetic, and immune response, and all the patients that, uh, all the treatments that patients receive. And he, he built this very nice tool. It's very nice because it's visual, and you can show to the patient and when you would like to convince the patient you need to go to uh, very intensive, you can, you can show this uh, uh, panel. So let's take a 16-year-old girl, small bowel and perianal disease, and this is a, a serological, uh, serological sum. And in that case, based on this model, so you can uh, change the parameter, and this is what will happen. So you show this to this patient. If you are not treated, within one year, your risk of complication is 100%. Wow. If you are treated with early azathioprine, this is your risk of complication. If you are treated with anti-TNF combo, this is your risk of complication. And if you are treated with steroids, this is your risk of complication. I think this is very nice. Of course, it needs to be refined, but I believe this is, this is a way to go. And um, something else, and, and Corey is also very keen on that, we, we need also, this is nice, but if the patient don't understand anything, it, it will not work. Huh? And uh, this, is, this is my problem, uh, especially in New York, I must say. <laughs> so, but this is not only in New York. This is a study that I've done when I was the president of ECHO. It was a kind of poll of uh, 24 European countries, 5,000 surveys, and look at the result. I, I was shocked. 18% huh? of patients waited over five years before their diagnosis. 64% were hospitalized in the ER before the diagnosis was made. 53% were never able to discuss with their GI. They wanted to discuss about Crohn's disease, what, what's Crohn's disease, no, no time, no time, 53%. And 21% suffered discrimination. I think this is, this is really bad. So we need to do something about education. Something else that we will need also to refine, I have shown that uh, we have this uh, huge uh, CD pipeline, but in the future, maybe in two, three years, how we'll be able to choose which drug for which patients. And I've shown this uh, algorithm yesterday. This is what we are doing today. Basically, we are giving the same drug to all patients, and some patients are uh, reacting, some are failing, some have side effects. But in the future, based on 
personalization on blood marker genetic microbiome will be able to tell to one patient you need this drug or you need this drug and then i hope that in all patients we will get the effect and no side effects so to come back to education this is what uh, patients believe in uh, new york this is a treatment of Crohn's disease in new york it's called breaking the vicious cycle it's a carbohydrate free diet so you have to fight against this concept and look at this very nice study from Denmark showing the impact of education. These were uh, 300 uh, patients with UC on five hazards. Some were not educated, some were educated by a nurse and through a website. And then those who were educated, their adherence to the drug increased by 40%. And when a flare occurred in those patients, they were able to control the flare like in, in, in one month while those who were not educated, the flare lasted much more. So acceptance leads to adherence and leads to improved outcomes. So to conclude, I hope I, I have uh, shown you that we have the, the field is moving fast with all these new concepts, goals, strategies, and unmet need, but we still have to be cautious before accepting all these data because uh, all these data have to be proven by prospective trial. And this is our job, our academic hospital, to perform these clinical trials, and then the concept will be tra uh, transferred in clinical practice. Thank you. Too tight control, like with your ties. That's why I have no tie. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, I, I don't know if there is an uh, endocrinologist who could uh, talk about that, about what they observe in diabetes, but there are data showing that too tight control actually could be detrimental for patients. But we, ha we, have, we, have, we have to do the study. You know, we have even now. Uh, some studies that propose not only to target endoscopy, but to target histology, and even to target also cross-sectional imaging. But of course, that we need a step-up combination of drugs and so on. And if you are talking about combination of drugs, there is combination of risks. And this is what we need to evaluate. So we need to do the study. So there's one endocrinologist. Oh, perfect. <laughs> actually, I was going to ask a corollary of actually what Corey just asked. So certainly in diabetes, what we think is that there's a window in which treatment, is, very aggressive treatment is very valuable, and then there's a time when that very aggressive treatment doesn't really yield as much benefit, but yields more harm. We also you know, wonder about subclinical disease. So when you showed your natural history, I'm curious whether this illness has a prolonged subclinical period of time, and is that a window of opportunity in which the disease sets itself up? I'm just curious if there's any data. Well, I, 
Well, you, uh, I'm very happy that you are uh, talking about that. I, I strongly believe in that. It's what I call uh, life before IBD. And actually, we, we presented that uh, DDW, but you have, you have done that a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, a very nice study with uh, DOD, the Department of Defense, where they have all this SERA from uh, recruits. So you have millions of, of SERA. And of course, some of those recruits who are followed like every two years with blood samples will develop Crohn's disease or UC. And we have access now to all their SERA up to 10 years before. And what is fascinating, up to six years before, they have antibodies against the, these antimicrobial antibodies that Corey is using in this, uh, in this predictive model. And what is even more striking that we, 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 we showed that those patients who had diagnosis will present with a complication six years before their titers and their number of antibodies is higher. So this is opening the way to prevention because we could then the uh, uh, target would be not after symptoms, but maybe even before. And if this holds true, in that case, I believe that maybe we could intervene with diets or, um, I don't know, manipulating the microbiome, maybe more than with uh, immunomodulators. But this is a dream. <laughs> I'm a pulmonologist and I share a few patients who have granulomatous salvulitis and such things as extraluminal manifestations. So I'm curious about your perspective and, and studies about broader um, you know, organ manifestations. How do we predict who those patients are going to be and how do we handle that? Oh, it's difficult. You mean uh, extraintestinal? Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, we, it's, uh, this has not been very well studied in clinical trials because presence of extraintestinal manifestation is a kind of item in, the, in our scoring system, but it's not very well detailed. Is a, for instance, arthritis or uh, arthralgia or skin, skin problem and so on. But when you go back to the CRF, there is almost nothing. And there is no study so far that has specifically targeted the extraintestinal symptoms in patients with uh, IBD. Not even talking about the pulmonary manifestation, which are still uh, still quite rare, maybe less than we maybe less rare than we believe, but this has never been um, very well uh, addressed. The epidemic in young people. I just wonder this. Uh, you mentioned the microbiome, and there's some idea now that maybe we're too clean. You know, in New Hampshire, we eat a pound of dirt. Uh, the kids eat a pound of dirt before they grow up. I mean, is that is that something that you look at? Yeah, yes, yes. This hygiene uh, hypothesis is uh, is very popular. Um, I don't know what to, what to make with, with this. Actually, uh, on the wake of this hygiene hypothesis, there were some control trials done with uh, Hellmans, as you know, with uh, Tricuris uh, Suisse. Uh, because preliminary data was uh, showing that when you give these uh, elements to a um, patient with Crohn's disease, you can cure them at least put them in remission. But two big studies are made completely negative, completely negative studies. And the placebo effect was, uh, was huge. And um, I don't know. I'm not sure that uh, hygiene may play a role. I, I strongly believe it may be more uh, diets, for instance. Because when, when you discuss, for instance, with people in Japan, and you can argue that their hygiene is, is, is very good and this has not changed in the last 20 years, what has changed in their, is their food. 
Uh, and now they are seeing this sharp incidence of, of Crohn's disease. Maybe it's a multi-component antibiotics, uh, diets, and so on, but it's tough to study. <coughs> Maybe it's, uh, it's caused by uh, McDonald's. <laughs> no, but the point that I, what is the, uh, what you know, I mean, is that to study the environment, to study genetics is very easy, but to, to study the environment is a nightmare. You have so many confounders and so on, but what, what has really changed in the last uh, 20 years And when you ask them what, what has changed is a diet they are changed from, from their traditional local diet to something which is more coming from the Quick question. There was a report about uh, processed foods having emulsifiers in them. What do you think that has to do with it? Yeah, so there was this very interesting paper in the Nature showing that uh, the emulsifier could be a kind of figure for inflammation. And there was a um, an old paper published by um, John Rhodes. It was an hypothesis like 10 years ago where he already put uh, this, uh, this uh, hypothesis. Because when you are uh, applying emulsifier to the mucosa, then the bacteria can get access uh, to the mucosa, not only on, through Peyer's patches, but also through the epithelium. So there is a huge increase in translocation. So now, uh, as the use of emulsifier increased in the past, it's not, it's not very clear, huh? because there are uh, many use in a washing, uh, washing machine or when you wash your uh, dish with, uh, with, with hands. And uh, it's tough to really know if the, if the use has, uh, has, has changed. But I, I, I agree, it's an interesting hypothesis. But this is typical. This is very nice experimental data. But when you want to prove this hypothesis at the human level, it's tough. I don't know how we could, uh, we could do that. And on the top of that, we, we believe that what's the most important is what you have been exposed in your childhood. So I don't know if you know if you have been exposed. For instance, have you been exposed to a fire when you were a child? Do you know? So I want to paint a pessimistic picture and, and, and uh, use that to ask you to speculate about the future of development of new ideas in the field. So if, if I was a pharmaceutical company, I would like the idea of identifying a, a greater number of people who need to be treated earlier and for longer to make more money. And so the identification of people through non-clinical means like a CRP would be very attractive to me. And yet, as you pointed out, we certainly could do the subsequent studies where we identify when that treatment could be stopped and maybe given a lower dose because you're modifying the market of the disease. 
Yet, those subsequent studies are harder to do because if we lower the size of the signal, you have to do bigger and bigger studies to be able to see those effects. And at the same time, we don't exactly know the cause of this, and the earlier we treat people, the harder it is to make causal correlations. So the question is, does the identification of people early in the course of disease and the early administration of therapy essentially preclude the identification of a cause and hook us to the pharmaceutical teat forever. <laughs> I still I still believe that um, even if we are able to treat so even if we are able to treat patients early on and basically control their disease we, we should still be able to understand in those patients what is happening before the disease. Because I believe that if we want to find the cause of the disease, we have to look at uh, events occurring before the first clinical onset. This is why I'm, I'm so keen on this uh, cohort of, uh, of people who develop from disease. And uh, for, for instance, there is this very nice uh, study in Canada, which is called the GEM project where they are looking at first-degree relatives of patients with Crohn's disease who are at risk to get Crohn's disease, and they are following them. And you know that among them, a certain percentage will develop Crohn's disease, and a certain percentage will not. And then you can really identify what are the, the primary events before the clinical onset. Because as soon as the, clean, the disease has started, then you have inflammation and so on, and everything is blurred. The microbiome is blurred, I mean the immunology is blurred, and so on. So the point that all those microbiome studies that have been done so far have been done in patients. There are few studies now in relatives who were uh, healthy, showing that there are some uh, correspondence between relatives and patients, but no study showing that when you have a micro certain microbiome at risk, you may develop uh, Crohn's disease. This is just emerging. And maybe it's not uh, in the microbiome. Huh? You know, I always fear that this kind of wave, uh, as we were discussing with uh, Corey, 15 years ago it was a genome. Everything was in the genome. And this is a, there is a fascinating paper that will be published in the Lancet soon, looking at the correlation between genotype and phenotype in uh, IBD. 30,000 patients, huge study, nothing. Nothing. Meaning that all the susceptibility genes are not able to explain the phenotypes. There is just this association that actually we found in 2001 that not two is associated with ileacrodisis. Okay, it's not a big deal. Huh? For instance, no explanation for disease distribution in UC, no explanation for progression in Crohn's disease, no explanation for extraintestinal manifestation. Nothing on 30,000 patients. Maybe there are other genes, other than the susceptibility genes that govern this uh, phenotypic uh, expression, but we, we, we don't know. Maybe it's uh, epigenetics. This is a big deal now. No. So right now, to get funded, you have to study the microbiome somehow. This is what's happening today. We had things before. What's the next thing? that people will have to apply their NIH grants and in the future? What is the next wave of interest in IBD beyond the microbiome? And will it be combinations of 
precision medicine and yeah. clinical care and this is believe this is what uh, Corey is doing because he's always uh, ahead in time. So it's, it's kind of this very complex uh, modeling, uh, biostatistics uh, uh, modeling. I mean, this is very popular now. <laughs> now the point is to integrate all this data, microbiome, uh, phenotypic data, microbiome. And so we have a guy in our uh, unit, Eric Schad, with a big, uh, big guy. This, uh, I don't understand what he's doing, <laughs> but he's putting all this data in a big machine, and then you have this network. And, um, but I, I believe that these, these guys need to work with machines. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to thank you for giving us a great Thank you.